broken picker syndrome, and more cringeworthy dating stories. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. And today, we are diving deep into one of the most common symptoms of being an adult child, broken picker syndrome, BPS, not to be confused with IBS, although BPS does have some of the same symptoms, constipation, abdominal pain, diarrhea, all that fun stuff. Now, I'm going to read a few statements, and I want you to see if any of these are applicable to you. You date the same type of person over and over. For example, alcoholics, narcissists, workaholics, cheaters, people who are physically, verbally, or emotionally abusive. You literally date the same person over and over. You stay in the same toxic relationship with the same toxic person. You fall in love with someone's potential and not who they actually are. You get into relationships that get super serious right out of the gate and then crash and burn quickly. You stay in a relationship with someone who treats you poorly or does not meet your emotional needs in hopes that one day this will change. You date someone with a track record of commitment issues or someone who flat out says they never want to get married in hopes that one day they're going to put a ring on it once they realize they can't live without you. Now, if any of those hit a nerve, then it's quite possible that you are suffering from broken picker syndrome. You consistently find yourself in the wrong relationships with the wrong people, and you can't figure out why. Why the fuck do I keep finding myself in these unhealthy relationships? Why am I stuck in self-destructive behaviors? And why the hell can I never seem to learn my lesson? Now, BPS is not unique to adult children. I would say that most people find themselves in a less-than-ideal romantic relationship at least once in their life. We figure out what we like. We figure out what we're looking for in a partner by figuring out what we don't like and what we're not looking for. But what separates adult children from most other people is that our BPS is often chronic and progressive. We figure out what we like is essentially the same thing as what we don't like. And then we stay in these relationships. We go to any length to keep these unfulfilling and toxic relationships alive and thriving. And if and when the relationship ends, it's only a matter of time before we find ourselves in the same relationship. The face, the name may have changed, but the unfulfillment and toxicity remains the same. And we do whatever we can to deny the fact that we are the common denominator. Now, you've already heard some about my battle with BPS in the first episode, but at that point, I was probably already at stage four or five. I want to backtrack, and I want to tell you the prequel to The Tale of Two 
Bryans. And then after that, I'm going to be talking to one of my best friends, Jessica, a former sufferer of BPS, and she's going to tell us how the hell she's managed to be in remission for 10 years. Yes, y'all, recovery is possible. Holla fucking Hallelujah. I'm a slave to your games. I want to chain you up. I want to tie you down. I'm just a sucker for pain. I'm a sucker for pain. I got the squad tatted on me from my neck to my... So while it is not a requirement, it is strongly suggested in most 12-step recovery programs that you don't date in your first year. And this is for a few reasons, one being that the high of a new relationship, the honeymoon phase, can be used as a substitute to the drugs and alcohol. So then when these relationships end, which they often do, you are at a greater risk for relapse. Case in point, me with Billy that I told you about last episode. The other reason it is suggested you don't date is because of broken picker syndrome, which I would say most newly sober individuals suffer from. We don't typically walk into the rooms of recovery with high self-esteem and a plethora of healthy romantic relationship history. And as the law of attraction tells us, like attracts like, or rather sick attracts sick. And we find ourselves in relationships with people that we are rather repulsed by later on. Case in point, Mr. You're Old Enough to Be My Dad, who I started dating at seven months sober. Let's call him Bob. Now, Bob was also in the program. In fact, our sponsors were married. Now, the age difference between me and Bob was more than my actual age. Yes, I was 20, and Bob, Bob was 45. Now, I wish I could tell you that he was super loaded or that he looked like George Clooney. Uh, that was not the case. He was by no means a loser or physically repulsive, but the typical reasons you might date someone 25 years older than you were not in play. Yes, I know that might sound shallow, but I said it. And thankfully, after dating for six months, I essentially came to my senses and realized how weird and gross this truly was. It was like I had been wearing a blindfold the whole time, and then finally someone took it off, and I realized that I was dating a 45-year-old man who was shorter than me with a receding hairline and had kids that were essentially in my peer group. So that was the end of that relationship. And I stayed single for a little over a year. Thankfully, I have never been one of those people that hops from one relationship to the next. There are typically some significant time gaps between relationships for me, probably because of how long it takes me to get over these relationships. But once I would get past the heartbreak... I would be in my prime. Those were my happiest days when I was single. But then as soon as I would enter a new relationship, my peace of mind would immediately get hijacked. 
I would later realize that that was because I was essentially living in a trauma response anytime I was in a relationship, but we'll talk about that in another episode. So then right around the time I celebrated two years sober, I started dating Ball Boy. Let's call him Fred. Now, Fred was a tennis pro at the country club that I played at, and Fred, well, Fred had some substance abuse issues. Like, he hadn't had a driver's license in five years due to multiple DUIs and other drinking-related crimes. Clearly, my picker was in prime condition. Now, Ball Boy was very reminiscent of Brian number one in a few ways. The first being that there wasn't a single time that we hung out where he wasn't under the influence of something. But also, like Brian number one, he never really seemed to be super fucked up. So it was fine, right? I mean, who cares that sometimes he started drinking at 10.30 in the morning on a Saturday? I obviously knew this wasn't fine, though, since I sure as hell did not tell my sponsor or friends about how much he was actually drinking. And also, like Brian, number one, Fred was super, super into me right off the bat, texting me and calling me all the time, wanting to hang out almost every day. But his interest in me started to wane at the three-week mark. I started hearing from him less. He wanted to see me less. And when we did hang out, he was mean. Like, he would make condescending comments about my sobriety. But you guys know me. By the third date, I had decided that Fred was my soulmate. So I gladly accepted these mere crumbs until he finally ended things around the six-week mark. And this six-week relationship took me about two years to get over. I was convinced that it was Fred or bust, that I would never find anyone as great as Fred. How could I possibly ever meet another tennis pro with a drinking problem that hadn't had his driver's license for five years and made fun of me because I was sober. Those are like one in a million. If you are currently dating a gem like Fred, do not let them get away. (laughs) And I spent so much fucking time and energy over the next two years in hopes that we would get back together. It was really quite pathetic I would strategically plan to arrive or leave at the club at certain times in hopes of running into him in the parking lot. I would frequently drive by his house, even though it was completely out of the way, and there truly was no reason for me to be on his street other than for stalking purposes. And I would finally get over Fred when I met Mr. Perfect on paper. It was a Saturday night in September 2012. I had just celebrated four years of sobriety, and I am at a Young People's AA meeting, and in walks Mr. Perfect on paper. Let's call him George. Now, during the sharing portion of the meeting, George raises his hand and shares that he is visiting from New York City, that he was 10 years sober, and that he would be living in town for several months. 
And I could tell just by looking at him, the way he spoke, what he was wearing, that this was somebody I needed to date. So after the meeting, I go and introduce myself. And guys, he was even better than I could have imagined. He worked in private equity and was going to be working on an IPO in town for several months. He had gone to the University of Chicago, where he was the starting quarterback. He was currently working on his MBA at NYU, and he was taller than me. Now, I just did a Google search of all of those preceding facts I just laid out to see if you could figure out who he was, which you cannot. So just wanted to let you know that his anonymity is protected. So after our 10-minute chat, he asked for my number and said that he would love to hang out. And when I get into my car, I am convinced this is the one. I am planning our wedding. I am thinking about whether we should do Thanksgiving with my family or his. And I thought to myself, finally, it's my turn. I had seen all of my other friends in the program who had once had broken pickers find themselves in healthy relationships with great guys who treated them like queens. And I sighed with relief that finally, fina fuckily, it was my turn. But it's no spoiler that it obviously was not my turn or I wouldn't be doing this damn podcast. So George and I start dating, and George is wonderful. We had a lot of fun together, a lot of things in common, and there was tons of chemistry. But the problem with George was that he was really only in town 50% of the time. The rest of the time, he was either back in New York or jet-setting around the country. And when he wasn't in town, I never heard from him. Like the occasional text here or there, but really that was it. It was like I was his mistress and he had a wife and kids back in New York. That's not what was actually going on, but it sure fucking felt like it. But when he was in town, we essentially played house. We were in a long-term relationship. He would either take me out to fabulous dinners or I would cook him great meals. And I could tell by the way he looked at me that this just wasn't some fling for him. And for the entirety of our six-month relationship, I was fucking miserable. My peace of mind was totally dependent upon the actions or inactions of George, or rather my perception of them. And the majority of the time, I was in a painful state of hypervigilance. The fact that he would frequently cancel on me because of work or that I had caught him in a few lies about him being in town when he said that he had not been in town, that sure as hell did not help. Of course, though, I never confronted him on any of those lies, and I was scared to death to bring up any sort of conversation to define the relationship or tell him that it didn't make me feel good when I never heard from him or to talk about what would happen when his project wrapped up because I liked him so much and I was afraid of running him off. So then one night, he comes over to my apartment after work, and he tells me that his project was coming to a close and that he would be starting on a new deal in Boston starting the following week. And he was essentially breaking up with me, although he didn't have the balls to, like, flat out say that. He told me that he would be back in two weeks and we would continue the conversation. But let's talk in two weeks actually meant You'll never fucking hear from me ever again. 
And honestly, there was some relief when that day came two weeks later and I didn't hear from him as the tiniest bit of hope I had was officially shattered. And the past six months had been a literal hell. And at least now I could finally start the process of moving on. Although I was positive that George was the last guy on earth that would ever be interested in me and that I would never meet anyone again that I liked as much as him. So it's a year and a half later, and I had moved to San Francisco during that period of time. I had decided that unless I wanted to marry an unemployed surfer or a redneck, that I better leave Jacksonville. No, I am not saying that all of the guys in Jacksonville are unemployed surfers or rednecks, but it seemed like all the single ones were. It seemed like all the good ones were already married. So I am walking down the street in San Francisco with a friend. We had just finished dinner and I run into fucking George. I was pretty close to shitting my pants. Thankfully, I did not. And he said that he was in town for work. Shocking. And he asked if I would be open to getting coffee with him the next day, which I agreed. And I was pretty sure that it would go one of two ways. He would either try to sleep with me or he would make amends to me. And it was the latter. The next day, we met in a park in which he made amends to me for the way that he had treated me and for how the relationship had ended. We did not have sex, although we would six months later. But that is a story for another day. So now it is September 2015. Enter Mr. This has to be the one. It was a Sunday morning. I'm laying in bed watching football, and I get a notification that I received a message from Mr. This has to be the one. Let's call him Steve. Now, I knew Steve from the program back in Jacksonville, and I had always had a bit of a crush on him. The problem was that Steve was one of those guys back in Jacksonville, who was dating material, but unfortunately was married and had been for over 10 years. And he was married to a woman that was significantly older than him. So we're messaging back and forth. And at a certain point, the conversation took a turn from football trash talking to him asking me if I was dating anyone, in which I replied, nope, I'm as single as they come. He replied with the astonished face emoji, you know, the one with the open eyes, open mouth, and raised eyebrows. And he says, I don't see how that's possible. You're such a catch. I then tell him that I consider him a catch as well and had always been a tad resentful that his wife had snagged the one guy I deemed to be an eligible suitor within my age bracket in Jacksonville. So five minutes later, he texts me back and says... I've always had a bit of a crush on you too. And actually, I told Megan I want a divorce. Now, he had not moved out of the house at that point, but he said that he would be in his own place by the time I came to Jacksonville six weeks later for Thanksgiving. And over the course of the next six weeks, he did move into his own place. And over the course of those next six weeks, We were in constant communication. If we weren't talking, we were texting, and it felt like the longest six weeks of my life. And there wasn't a doubt in my mind that Steve was the one. 
and that all of the pain that I had endured in previous relationships had all been worth it because it had brought me to this moment. It had brought me to Steve. And when we finally laid eyes on each other at the airport, it was magical. So it's the day after Thanksgiving, and we check into a nice resort on the ocean for a romantic staycation. We had about three hours to kill before our dinner reservation at my favorite restaurant. He took a nap while I was doing some work on my computer. And after about 45 minutes, he rolls over and says to me, I don't think I can do this. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, I can't do this relationship. It's moving too fast. Now, over those six weeks, when we had been talking, when things started to get a little bit serious, when we were talking about future plans, I brought up the fact of whether or not we were moving too quickly and whether or not he was as emotionally available as I was. Could he match what I could bring to the relationship table? We both agreed that hopping from one relationship to the next is typically not the healthiest choice, especially for alcoholics. But he assured me that he was ready. He said that while he was just physically leaving the relationship, he had been emotionally detached for years. So I say to him, when did you start to feel this way? He said when he was on his way to pick me up at the airport. And I said, let me get this clear. You start having doubts about whether or not you want to be in a relationship with me, yet the following day you decide to have sex with me. And he said, I was hoping that having sex would relieve those doubts. And I couldn't believe that this was happening to me. And I wanted to fucking die. I felt like I had fucking died. And I spent the next three days at my friend's house, inconsolable and non-functioning, barely able to get myself off the pull-out couch in her kid's playroom. And I thought my life was over. And I knew that I would never get over this and that this was my last chance for love. And at this moment, I still had no clue that the reason this kept happening to me was because I was suffering from the disease of family dysfunction. However, it would only be a few months later that I would meet Brian number one and have my first moment of clarity. And guess what that means, y'all? That means you get to hear the rest of the Brian number two story in the next episode. So let's talk about why adult children's pickers are so fucked up. And that is because of this. How we learn to love in our early relationships forms the template for how we love throughout our lives. Our childhood experiences, they prime us for what to expect from others, from life, and from relationships. And when you grow up in a home where love was unpredictable, conditional, or not there at all, this becomes our norm. And we seek out this type of love in our subsequent relationships. We have no frame of reference of what a healthy, intimate relationship is. So we seek out what we know, shame and abandonment. We seek out people who can treat us like our parents had, who can make us feel like our parents had and who can reconfirm the faulty beliefs that were ingrained by our parents. And that's why we don't fucking learn our lesson, because each relationship just further intensifies this subconscious belief we have 
that we are unlovable. And then we emit that to the world and carry it into our next relationship. And it isn't until we do that deep inner work that we can break this self-destructive, repetitive behavior. And by inner work, I mean identifying faulty beliefs and themes in romantic relationships, understanding the root of them, and taking action that will help build self-esteem. Listen, you're not going to fix your broken picker overnight. It's going to take time, and it will be painful at times. But I promise you that there is light at the end of the tunnel and that you are strong enough to make it there. Trust me. So now for my conversation with broken picker survivor, Jessica. And please stick around to the end of the episode for the first edition of Hit a Girl Up, where I read listeners' messages and questions. Well, it is my pleasure to introduce my hetero life partner, my bestie, my rock, and most importantly, a survivor of broken picker syndrome who has been in full remission for what? 10 years. Jessica. About two years. Yeah. Thank you. Now we met when we were both very much suffering from BPS. Do you want to talk about when we first met the first time that you laid eyes on me? Sure. So, um, gosh, I was just getting sober. It was one of my first AA meetings. Probably was only sober a couple of weeks at this point, if that. And um, it was pouring rain and I couldn't find the meeting. And I walked in late. I remember hearing people say, you would go out in bad weather for a bottle of liquor. So you'll go out in bad weather for an AA meeting. And I was really stressed out, like, where the hell is this meeting? And I walked in, sat down in the front row and uh, you were there. And uh, I was 31 years old and you were really, really friendly. And you said, hi, I'm Andrea. I'm only 20, but uh, hi, you know, and you were real welcoming. And I was thinking, oh, this little girl. Um, And then after the meeting, you know, we're all mingling. And I see that she's dating this man who's like way old, like uh, definitely much older than I was. I mean, you were 20. I was 31. And this guy was like, Probably 45, 15 years older than me at the time. And I'm thinking, oh, God, you're dating this guy. What are you doing? You're so young. Um, So, yeah, that was my first time (laughs) meeting you. Vomit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So when do you think that you first started showing signs of broken picker syndrome? Do you think that you came out of the womb with broken picker syndrome? No, no. I think um, I started showing signs of this in my adolescence. Um, In a nutshell, I grew up uh, not feeling a a sense of emotional security, not feeling uh, unconditionally loved by my mom and dad. And I was looking for something. I didn't know what I was looking for, but, you know, I realized now that it was it was love. It was acceptance. And um, I realized when I started to go through puberty and coming to, you know, 11, 12 years old, that the way I could get attention and the way I could get uh, someone to want me to be around and be interested in me and and, and think that I matter would be to, uh, you know, being sexual. And there was this uh, boy in my neighborhood. um, His name was 
And we, uh, he, he would, he would walk me home from the bus stop when I was like 12 and we would make out and, um, he would like throw me on the floor and grind on me and, um, get really excited. And he would say, Oh, come on, come on, come on. And, uh, I remember, you know, I would get excited and we would kiss and he would touch my boobs and I was like 12 years old. And then we would be going at it. And then he would just stop abruptly and get up and walk out the door and be like, see you later. And I didn't know why he was suddenly finished and leaving at the time, but now I do know why. And I think you do too. Um, And that was the, you know, that was the only interaction we had. And I was too shy and too insecure to even like speak to him other than the times that that would happen. And that was like basically my first experiences with boys is being used, having experiences that were not enjoyable to me. That was only enjoyable to them. He got to finish what he was doing. I did not. And um, I left, I was left feeling bewildered and um, like, you know, worthless. And um, yeah. And then soon after that, I met like my first love, this boy that I was absolutely obsessed with. His name was Pat. And he was um, gorgeous. He was six foot three. He had black, dark, dark hair and blue eyes. And he said he was black Irish, which apparently means an Irish person <laughs> with dark hair. Uh, that, 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 that's a real term for that, apparently. Yeah, it's a white person, but with Irish with dark hair. So I was obsessed with this boy and he was so gorgeous. And he liked me at first and we would make out. and. Um, And then, you know, he would kind of ghost me. And then he had this best friend, Rob, and I would make out with Rob. And then he would kind of ghost me. And, you know, they'd be feeling me up and stuff. Nothing much else was happening at this point. I was like 12 years old. But you had actual boobs. I didn't. I had enormous boobs at 12 years old. They were like 34D. They they were already droopy. So no, no socks in your bra. No, they grew fast and, and they, they, and they were, they were long. They were 34 long. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, these two like passed me back and forth and I would like be dating one and then the other and then one and then the other. And they would talk about me and I, you know, I was humiliated. Um, and I was always crying and I would, I mean, I was hysterically crying over Pat cause I was like in love with him. Um, so I had a broken picker from probably age 11 or 12. The first time I was old enough to really like, you know, be making out and stuff. Mm-hmm. Do you think that prior to Tom, you were ever in a relationship? Thomas, her husband, for those of you who don't know, do you think you were ever in a, in a healthy relationship prior to Tom? No, no. There were times when I was not relationship material and the other person definitely was, but I wasn't in a place to receive that. And then there were times when I was dating real losers, but I never had a healthy relationship or a real relationship with like real communication until I met Tom. So talk about when, you know, leading up to your sobriety, I guess, what did your romantic life look like in that year or two leading up to getting sober? Oh God. Oh God. I was married. You know, I divorced in 2006. I got sober in 2009. So those three years between, it was like, you know, I was getting drunk, blacking out, sleeping with people, all different people. It started out, um, I got divorced in 2006. And then the lawyer 
that I used. I started sleeping with him. And I don't think I knew that. Yes. And he was a friend of my ex-husband and I, and we had a very amicable divorce. So we just picked this friend of ours to file the paperwork for us. We had no arguments. And then like the day we signed, he followed me into the parking lot. Hey, what are you doing later? And uh, we ended up like hanging out together, um, sleeping together. And, you know, he was a pretty cool guy. He was, he had his own um, law practice. He had a nice, um, nice, uh, condo on the river. He was fun. He liked to go to a lot of concerts of Dave Matthews band and baseball games and fun things. And I was so fucked up at that time that, um, I, there was no way I could be a member of any relationship with anyone. And he was a raging alcoholic and he was also like five foot four, but not, not that that matters for me, but even for me, that matters because he was really, really short, even for someone as short as me. But, um, so that, you know, there was that, it was me going on match.com and meeting people and then sleeping with them and two guys at the same time and meeting my neighbors at the community pool in the condo community where I lived and sleeping with them. A lot of blacking out, drunken sex, not remembering what happened. Um, that, that's pretty much what it looked like leading up to coming into AA. So really good. It was, it was respectable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe you can give me that five foot four attorney's name afterwards and i can hit him up that's what i'm looking for you know he does love dave matthews band he's met dave matthews many times he goes watches their concerts all the time so but he he is a foot shorter than you no <laughs> it's close close it close enough <laughs> he would be he would be a foot shorter than me had i not started smoking at 12 <laughs> exactly <laughs> so tell me about and I, I think I know who, but tell me about your first relationship in sobriety. Oh, God. I don't know if you know. I, I was about uh, five, uh, four or five weeks. Four days? Yeah, weeks, weeks, maybe a month, <laughs> maybe five weeks. You know, I remember I was not sober very long. And Katie was a sponsor. And she says, in the first year, traditionally, uh, we don't date. And I was like, well, you don't know what it's like to be single. You're married. You've been married for a long time. I don't have to listen to that. I'm a grown woman. And uh went to this event called Jewish Java and it was like a little coffee. <laughs> it was at this, this bagel place, this place called let's nosh. And, yeah, let's nosh. Um, it, which has gone out of business, but I went there for this Jewish Java event and I was teaching piano lessons at the Jack's Jewish center. And that's how I knew about this. And I went and there was this guy who just moved to Jacksonville from South Florida. His name was Adam. And he was, uh, Oh Yeah. He was a PhD and he um, had this new job as some kind of director at the Jewish center. And we met, we ended up exchanging numbers. He was nerdy looking and not very good looking, but you know, like my sponsor said, any distraction will do. And uh, I, I got so mad when she said that, but now I'm like, oh yeah, she was right. I was using men as a drug. Like, what can I distract myself with? So I don't have to feel the way that I feel when I'm not distracting myself with some substance so we ended up you know getting together a few times and then the first time we started like kissing and making out he started saying things about do you want to go to a club and I was like thinking uh, what I said like a strip club and he's like no a sex club where you hook up with other couples he said they have them in every city and I was like uh no thank you I I don't 
And uh, he was like, oh, well, you know, what if we did? What if we did? And there was another girl. What would you do to her? And he wants me to start, you know, talking dirty. And then, you know, I honestly don't even remember if we had sexual intercourse or not. I don't know exactly what was happening with his penis, but I just don't know that. I don't know if he if it penetrated, but I know that he finished doing what he was doing. And I was left like back when I was a, a preteen, like bewildered, like what just happened? Nothing happened for me. I hope something happened for you. And when I told him I was completely not interested in going to a sex club, he never called me again. And I was, you know, I was really, really early in sobriety and my feelings, you know, I didn't have my alcohol to anesthetize myself with. And I was, my feelings were so intense and I wasn't like in love with this person. I didn't even know him, but I was so obsessed and so upset that I would drive um, to his apartment complex. And my plan was that I was going to break in. I was going to break the window and break into his apartment and do something. I don't know exactly what I thought I was going to do. But I drove there and sat in my car, walked over to the window, started fiddling around with it and realized that I couldn't get in unless I would break it. And then I thought, well, if I do break it, what am I doing here? What is my plan? And then I just started crying. And I was like, you know, what the hell is wrong with me? This is this is all crazy. I'm crazy. I'm, you know, I'm crazy. So, yes, you are. That's why we're friends. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I've ever heard that story. Um, yeah, for those who might be listening that aren't, you know, in sobriety, it is, it's not a rule, but it's strongly suggested that you don't date in your first year of sobriety. And that's for a couple of reasons. One, what Jessica just said that, you know, the high of a new relationship can often be used as a substitute to the drugs and alcohol. And and then the other reason that it's not suggested is because of broken picker syndrome. You know, we don't typically walk into sobriety with a, you know, plethora of healthy romantic relationship experience or with very high self-worth. So often, as we heard somebody say, that you will get into relationships with people that you will not even spit on down the road. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And you and I, you know, I think that we have um, several relationships or men that now when we think about them, that it triggers our gag reflex. And perhaps they feel the same way about us. I don't think so, but maybe. Yeah, they would would all take us back. Yes. (laughs) You know, we're really lucky that neither one of us ended up picking up a drink or a drug over it because God, it was some really, really painful times. And you and I had spent many evenings uh, very distraught over really unfortunate guys. I know. And, you know, when you when you were asking what was your first relationship in sobriety, I was thinking, uh, what's the definition of relationship? <laughs> none of these really were that. This is so true. So what about, um, and I'll answer these questions as well. So what was like one of the most cringeworthy moments you have of dating in sobriety? Oh, in sobriety? Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. Cringe, you go first. I, I can't really think of any. I can think of cringeworthy before sobriety. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, lucky you. Lucky you. <laughs> I can I can? I'll I'll talk about you know who. Um, yes, the bald headed guy. So so I uh, was talking with this guy a lot, and we were kind of like you know flirting and. We finally decided to get together. And this was like the last person I dated before I met my husband, who I ended up staying with for the last 10 years. And 
it's funny because this guy, he said, I'm that guy that after you date me, you always get married. Every girl that dates me, <laughs> we break up and then they marry the next guy they meet. And that's what happened. Um, he's like, that's how horrible I am. And he was absolutely right. So we we decided to, to hang out one night and he says, I don't have any money, really. I can't take you out on a date. Um, if you want to hang out, we have to meet halfway because I don't have a lot of gas in my car and I can't afford to fill my tank. Uh, we could go eat something cheap and go Dutch. And um, I said, why don't you just come to my house and uh, I'll cook for you. And then he came over and I cooked for him and then we slept together. Um, and when I look back on that, I really cringe because I feel like now I realize that I deserve to be courted and treated like you know, a person who's valuable and who you're trying to court and date and impress and win over. And that I was so, my self-esteem was so low that I would go for that. Uh, it makes me cringe. Yeah, man, <laughs> baldy. <laughs> for me, I mean, I feel like there's just so many. <laughs> um, one of the things would be, and I think this happened in several relationships, but where, you know, I would just keep, the reality of the relationship or what was actually going on with the guy, a secret from those that were important in my life. And then when I would be in excruciating amounts of pain, I would, you know, fess up and get honest about it. And there was several times, especially with Mr. Looks Great on Paper, where something would happen, um, you know, I'd catch him in a lie or something and I would tell you or my sponsor about it. And then I would make up these conversations that I would have with the guy, like confronting them on it and making up these uh, perfect responses so that I could then tell said friend and sponsor that I confronted them on it. And he, and he said the perfect thing just so that people would be okay with me continuing to see them. Um, but in reality, I had no, there was never a moment where I even considered having these conversations like with these guys. And Remember, like we did the drive-by when I was dating um, Ball Boy. Yes. Um, and I used to, with Mr. Looks Great on Paper, I would call all these different hotels to see if he was staying at them. I'm not quite like your incident with the breaking in the window. I'm not quite sure what I was going to do if I found out <laughs> that he was. Um, yeah. And then the stuff with, you know, Brian number two, there's plenty of cringeworthy moments there, but the listeners are going to have to wait to hear about that in a later episode. So what about common themes in relationships and with men? I can start. For me, a big thing was men that kept me completely compartmentalized from the rest of their life, that I was a secret, almost as if I was to be in a relationship with me was something that was shameful or embarrassing. Um, and that I was always plan B. I was the girl, I was the one that you hung out with when you didn't have anything better to do. And I remember when I was dating Ball Boy, we would have to drive like all the way over the, the intercoastal to go to the damn Rube Tube, the Ruby Tuesday, so that we wouldn't run, he, we wouldn't run into anybody that potentially we knew because he didn't want people to know that he was seeing me. And this was just kind of a common theme and, and very, in a bunch of relationships that I was in. And I think that because of my experiences in middle school, where I was the girl that no one wanted to be friends with, that I was, I was able to accept that because I believe that deep down inside, maybe not on the surface, but deep down inside, I believe that I was somebody to, that was shameful or, or embarrassing to be associated with. 
And then the other theme for me would be that guys that are super, super into me right off the bat, and then abruptly, rather quickly, maybe in a matter of a few weeks, their interest in me completely evaporates and I am left confused and hurt. So those would be the two biggies for me. For me, uh, it would be, you know, like I was saying earlier, when I was young, I would throw myself sexually at people because I was like desperate for some kind of acceptance. And that's the only way I knew how to connect. And um, sometimes they would fall in love with me. And I would get into these relationships that I didn't want to be in. And then I didn't know how to get out. And I had this string of relationships starting at age 14. And um, gosh, up until um, probably up until I divorced in 2006, my whole life, really, it was like I would be with someone that I didn't want to be with and I wouldn't be able to break up with them because I felt guilty and I would be manipulated. I would always have these kind of men that would say, I can't live without you. If you leave me, I'm going to kill myself. And I would believe that this person's well-being uh, rested in my hands and that I had the power to make or break them. And I, you know, I learned when I was going to therapy and everything when I was younger that you don't have the power to make a man kill himself. You do not dictate how someone else feels or whether or not they're okay in life. They either are or they're not. You can't take on that responsibility. But for so long, it really felt like it was my responsibility. And God, I remember dating so many boys and men, you know, I was in these relationships and just thinking, oh, I can't stand him. He's such a loser. It would start out with me throwing myself at him sexually. We'd be hot and heavy. And then he'd be like, I love you, I love you. And then I'd be stuck in this relationship and I couldn't get out. It would happen over and over and over again. Have you been able to make any connections to anything that happened to you like as a child or what was going on in your family life that kind of made you have those faulty beliefs that you had to stay in these relationships that were unsatisfying to you? It's hmm, a good question. I think I just, uh, in a nutshell, felt like that my feelings and my well-being was less important than than that of others because my self-esteem was so low that I thought I didn't matter. My happiness doesn't matter as much as someone else's. I, I didn't have any value. Mm-hmm. So what about, you know, how do you feel like you were able to, you know, recover from broken pick, picker syndrome? Because you were able to go into remission a lot faster than me. So what steps do you think you took or what was it that allowed you to kind of break these destructive relationship patterns and behaviors? I honestly don't know. I I feel like um, my last relationship that was really bad was with that one that we were going to meet halfway and he couldn't fill his tank of gas. And then we slept together and I could, you know, that one, uh, it was a bad experience. I remember feeling like I started to have a little self-esteem. You know, I was sober for almost two years at this time. I was an Alcoholics Anonymous. I was doing the steps. I was starting to help other people. I was starting to have a little measure of self-esteem. And I started to feel that the way this person was treating me was suddenly not okay with me. And it was just incongruent with how I was starting to feel about myself. And I remember it was such a big deal the day that I called him up and I said, I can't see you anymore, that I was able to say those words and risk being single. And I always thought 
in my head, well, it's better than nothing. Yeah, he's a loser, but I have someone to spend time with and sleep with. And who knows who I'll have again after this if we break up. So it's better than nothing, right? And I got to that point where I said, it's not better than nothing. And um, I was able, even though it was hard, I was hysterically crying. I was able to say the words, I can't see you anymore. And um, it was empowering, but it, it was hard. And then I remember just praying, you know, and I was never religious before I came into AA, but you know, that prayer of desperation, like when you first quit drinking and you're God, please help me. I can't go on like this. And I had this bottom with relationships after that. And I hit my knees and I was crying and I said, God, please bring someone good into my life and someone who treats me really, really, really good. And if you do, I'll treat him really well in return, please. And I met Tom so soon after that. But I felt like he, my prayer was answered. And the way he was treating me, he would um, ask me out on a date, show up at my house with flowers, walk me to the car, open the door, sit me down, take me to the restaurant, pull out my chair. After the date, he would walk me back to my door, not try to kiss me, not try to touch me, say goodnight. And then he would call me and tell me he had a great time. And I was 30 three years old and it was the first time anyone had ever courted me I never felt like what it was like to actually date someone correctly and be treated like a like a human being like a lady um and yeah that that's what happened so then what and I want you to be obviously completely honest and I obviously moved to San Francisco where things got worse for me but I guess what was your experience of kind of watching me you know, continue to just kind of have these struggles and dating and get worse and worse and worse in each time. And you've been such a loving and, and wonderful friend to me. And I'm so grateful for you because you truly have been my rock in so many moments. And I never have felt judged by you. And I've always felt very held by you. But I'm just curious what your experience was like watching me struggle. Well, I mean, part of me felt like you were so young and I thought, what do you need a relationship for yet? You're so young. Enjoy your life. Date around. You don't need to, you know, I thought, why does she want to be in a relationship? You know, she lives in a fabulous city. If I were her age and I live in San Francisco, I'd be going out on dates with all different men and having fun and that. And then, but I thought, well, that's not true. I'm saying that, but that's not what I would be doing. I would be <laughs> doing what she's doing. <laughs> and, uh, I, what I realized is that you were hurting and you were having painful experiences. And, you know, I hated seeing you go through that, but, um, you know, I believe everything that we go through that's painful is part of our journey. It brings you where you need to be. And, um, you know, I hate that you have to hurt, but I feel like, you know, that's what, you know, I mean, if you, if you, uh, this is cheesy, but if you ride your bicycle up a steep hill and it's really hard and painful, you get to the top, you have a beautiful view and you get to glide down eventually. And I think this is part of your journey of pain to get to the top of that mountain where you get to be who you are meant to be. Mm -hmm. I am just so grateful for you. So grateful for you. We have so many happy, happy memories, especially in that book that you made me. Jessica made me a book before I went <laughs> off to California of all these pictures of uh, fun memories, except for that my head was cut off in all of the pictures, which is what happens when you're 5'11 and all of your friends are 5'2. <laughs> but you are so special to me and I love you so much. And I never knew 
that I could experience friendship and connection with somebody the way that I have experienced that with you. And I'm forever grateful for you. I love you too. I'm grateful for your friendship very much too. At at first, I didn't know why you wanted to be my friend because I was so old. And I thought, uh, I, you know, I was 31 when I got sober when we met, but I felt like I was so old. I had been divorced. I had a child who was seven years old when I got sober and you were, you know, young. And I thought, why does she want to be my friend? Uh, I, I didn't understand, but you know, we have a connection and in sobriety, you meet people in AA that you normally wouldn't meet. You wouldn't uh, maybe have ever met or ever mixed with or ever crossed paths with, and those become some of the best relationships. So, um, and I want to say also, when I made that book, I didn't actually construct a book where her <laughs> head was cut off. I sent the pics to like Shutterfly or one of these services. And then when the book came back, it was like that. So um, they're tallest. Yeah. heightism heightism yeah i still think that tall people should be a protective class (laughs) (laughs) well i love you so much and thank you for being so open and vulnerable and i'm hoping that you and i know you gave a lot of hope and wisdom to those currently suffering from bps so thank you very much (laughs) thanks for having me Well, that wraps up today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you heard something that can help you on your own journey. Please check out the show notes for resources. And now it is time for the first edition of Hit a Girl Up. First, a message I received from Rick. Andrea, I would like to thank you so much for doing this podcast. It has opened my eyes to so much that I never knew. I am a 52-year-old adult child. I have 11 months sober and still trying to figure out this whole living sober thing. I spent most of my life living with booze and drinking away my problems. After hitting my bottom, I have been working in AA to stay sober and lead a happy life. But there is something missing. Answers to questions I keep asking. Like, why? I know I grew up in an alcoholic family, my father was, and his father was too, but why am I the way that I am? Your podcast on the laundry list really opened my eyes. I have many of those traits on that list. Keep up the good work. You are affecting my life in many, many ways. Thank you, Rick, so much for your kind message. Seriously, it means the world to me, and I'm super pumped to have a guy listening. It's nice to know men are listening And remember that awareness is always the first step to change. So you are on your journey to healing. Then I received a message on TikTok from Stephanie asking for a recommendation for a good therapist in SoCal. I unfortunately do not have a specific recommendation for a therapist down there, but I do have some overall suggestions for finding a therapist. Now, there are many ways to treat the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family literature, support groups, 12-step groups. But in my opinion, the best way is to find a really good therapist. And I say that because most of us are suffering from a form of PTSD, which we will talk about more in a future episode. Now, I worked with a therapist for several years between four to seven years sober, and she helped me in so many ways, and I will be forever grateful to her. But This adult child realm was not her area of expertise. And when I hit my bottom with Brian number two, I did a Google search for adult children of alcoholics therapist, and I found my current therapist. 
who has literally saved my fucking life. So what to look for in a therapist? Someone who has a solid understanding of the disease of family dysfunction and a solid understanding of the family disease of alcoholism or addiction, if that's something that is part of the dysfunction that you grew up with, I would flat out ask them that. And I also think it's probably best to work with somebody who grew up in a dysfunctional family and overcome that. But I know I'm not necessarily suggesting that you ask them that, but you could and see what they say. And I also think that it's best to find a therapist that specializes in psychodynamic psychotherapy as opposed to CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Now, CBT is great, but it really focuses more on present-day issues, whereas psychodynamic therapy addresses more kind of the root causes of psychological distress and does more backwards-looking and seeing how the past is impacting the present. So I recommend finding a therapist that specializes in that. If you have any questions, comments, insights, please hit a girl up. I would love to hear from you. You can leave me a voicemail or send me an email. You'll find that information in the show notes as well. You can find me on Instagram and TikTok at adultchildpod. And please, if you haven't given me a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, I would greatly appreciate it if you would. And it will also help me reach more suffering adult children. Next episode, we are talking codependency. I will be telling you the rest of the Brian number two story. And I have an interview with the amazing author of the memoir, Good Morning, Destroyer of Men's Souls, Nina Renata Aaron. It's going to be super raw. It's going to be super vulnerable. And I'm super excited for y'all to hear it. It's going to be a goodie, I promise.